I'm Jack Zamlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2020 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series supported by AgriSolutions. In today's program, we share excerpts from our recent conversation with a sixth-generation strip-tiller from Kenton, Ohio, who applies a dollars-and-cents mentality to manage his 7,000-acre corn, soybeans, winter wheat, and livestock operation. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to AgriSolutions. AgriSolutions is the market leader in wearable parts, components, accessories, and solutions for tillage, seeding, planting, fertilizing, hardware, and inventory management solutions. Improve your performance and durability with a wide range of in-field solutions to advance your strip-till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Belota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Well, tracking on-farm return on investment is an increasingly important part of managing a successful and sustainable strip-till operation. The last few years have certainly challenged farmers to be more discerning with where and how they allocate their financial resources for equipment, inputs, labor, and technology. With background as a farm credit lender and founder of a crop software company, strip-tiller Brian Watkins dials into the economic aspects of his operation to ensure that every acre is accounted for in the farm's income management strategy. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, supported by AgriSolutions, we share excerpts from my conversation with Brian, who shares some of his economic evaluations, adaptations, and expectations to grow profitability on his diverse operation. So I farm in Northwest Ohio with my family, my brother, my nephew, and several other good people. We raise corn, soybeans, uh, some winter wheat, and we have livestock as well, some hogs. And we've been doing this for a long time. I'm a sixth generation. We're now up to the seventh. So then that's the main gig is is the farm. And we've grown, you know, I started farming uh, right out of college uh, with my brother, uh, first piece of equipment that went on my uh, depreciation schedule was a computer. That's kind of where I was at in the 80s. And we've we've been pretty, uh, you know, financial or my role. I, I've also spent some, spent some part-time work uh, as a lender, farm lender in the farm credit system. So, I mean, my role has been the financial side, but obviously all of the farming tasks, I mean, we share all of them. So, that, that's kind of my background. I mean, I went back, I got, I have an MBA. That's kind of a rare thing for Farmers, but uh, again, just kind of shows my business orientation, and, and I think it's worked out for us uh, in our business. Uh, I also um, have a small software company called Cropzilla, which is a financial and, and fleet. It's actually about farm fleets and optimization of those, uh, but very much from a financial perspective. Yeah, I mean, long, long career in ag, and feel like we've done some things well, and, and our family is well positioned. So, Brian, starting out here, thinking about the last year and, and maybe even the last uh, 18 months or so, I just wanted to get your take on what you've seen develop from a, an operational standpoint on your farm. Uh, how, have, how have you seen things change or what have you had to adapt to here with some of the internal and external influences we've seen kind of take shape in agriculture? Yeah, I would say, I mean, operationally, I guess it's driven sort of by, you know, your agronomic philosophy and how you're trying to do things, right? And we've been, you know, in, in Northwest Ohio, um, we're fairly, I mean, we're not in the, the totally flat, heavy clay soils, 
we're, we've got sort of a gentle roll and we've got some uh, clay and some loam, but uh, we're very uh, low tillage oriented and have been for a long time. And so the kind of things that we're doing is uh, strip till uh, placement of fertilizer in the fall. Uh, and then also then kind of a refreshing of strips in the spring ahead of the planter. Uh, no-till, uh, but, but part of, you know, that's for corn, although some of our corn is true no-till and almost all of our beans are no-till. We're using a lot of cover crops. We've actually used cover crops for over 30 years, but that, that has evolved and, and we're pushing that a little bit more right now. We've added more wheat to the rotation. We're doing some double crop. We're doing, you know, we're also using it as an opportunity to, to establish cover crops and and, and trying to make that work financially, just not necessarily, you know, the, the margins might not be quite as high in the year you do it, but you can uh, sort of justify it rotationally if it adds overall to the rotation uh, revenue. And so th- those are the things that drive sort of our operations, being able to get that work done, being able to get cover crops seeded. But ultimately operations are the same. It's timeliness and, and, and you know, getting the stuff planted on time. I mean, I would say that's another thing that we just, I feel like has become more and more Critical to us is timeliness. We feel like our window, you know, if I look at the last five years of weather, uh, we had one year that was almost perfect, but the other four have been very challenging, including last year when we didn't get half our crop planted. And so capacity to get the work done in a hurry has really driven some things for us. And we have we have tried to add to that, you know, maybe more so that we probably were a little bit leaner in years before that and really tried to get a lot of work done with not a lot of equipment. And we just realized that that, that it paid to have more capacity. So, I mean, those are some things that we're doing. So a phrase that, that, you know, has come up certainly more in the last couple of years, kind of correlating, uh, you know, the metrics of, of farm management and kind of getting some of those more defined outcomes on an economic side on what's going on operationally. And I know uh, having worked with you in the past, this is something that you've certainly really focused on, uh, you know, kind of down to the dollar and, and really trying to understand some of those practices and uh, systems that you're applying on your operation are, are paying off or not paying off. Um, just wondering if you could, you know, share a little bit about, you know, how you're doing that. You mentioned, you know, tillage practices and cover crops and how you're managing that, you know, from a bottom line perspective, um, you know, how are you kind of crunching those numbers to make sure that those are the right decisions? Well, that's an excellent point, you know, in that, and we do, I mean, as I mentioned, I have a a software tool called CropZilla, which was really built around solving a lot of my problems. And it gives us the ability to model out our operations. And if we're going to add some, we're going to add a late nitrogen pass, or we're going to add the strip till pass, or we're going to compare that to tillage passes, um, we we can do that and see the cost and not only the cost, we can see the time constraints that that's going to add and, you know, the capacity constraints on our our equipment lineup. So, so we do actually do a very in-depth, I mean, we, anytime we're, we're trading a piece of equipment, we know what the current one is costing us to operate per acre. We know what the break, you know, kind of where we're at on repairs and, and kind of a break even versus something new. Uh, and we can also then dial in potentially uh, either, a, you know, some some technological enhancement that would affect yield or uh, certainly a productivity enhancement. A great example, obviously, would be a planter that you can drive faster with. Right. And so we're very number oriented when it comes to sort of this operation and, and fleet uh, optimization. And it's really important to us. Uh, I mean, it still has to serve the larger purpose, which is, um, you know, uh, optimizing yields and doing it in a sustainable manner. And 
And of course, in our part of the world, we, we, you know, our soils are, are not as heavy, so we can do more no-till. We feel like it works really well for us. It's not gonna be the case for everybody. The other thing about our part of the world is just, uh, you know, our soils don't have a lot of water holding capacity. And when we get these big storms, it, it puts you out for a long time. And, and so again, it's this, it's this uh, capacity issue, being able, to, being able to push conditions a little bit, being able to, it's not gonna be perfect, but the, but the equipment has to work when it's not perfect. The system has to work when it's not perfect. Um, and, and, but also being able to, to get it done quickly and of course, labor is a constraint too. I mean, we so so uh, obviously there are times you just have to balance that labor capital mix uh, when you're trying to get as much capacity as you can. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Agri Solutions, for making this podcast possible. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of infield solutions to advance your strip till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Belota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Brian Watkins on a few of the most significant changes he's made during the last year in his strip-till system. So thinking about the last year or so, um, and, and from that economic management standpoint, what are maybe a couple of the biggest revelations or adaptations you've had to make based on, you know, what you're seeing out of uh, your seasonal operations. Maybe it's a, an equipment or an input or um, a, a system or a method that you're applying that certainly in the last couple of years have, have challenged a lot of operations to be smarter, you know, with how they're operating. And just was curious, you know, from somebody who, you know, really is, putting an emphasis on that economic piece of their operation, you know, is there anything that has kind of stood out to you in terms of, um, you know, maybe changes that you, you've had to make, maybe they're subtle, maybe they're, you know, more significant, but, um, you know, when you're kind of doing that analysis, uh, things that have kind of jumped out. You know, it's hard to pinpoint that as I listen to you talk about sort of what have been, especially in the, if we think about sort of this current time frame and what are driving some decisions, uh, it, it, I'm going to take a little different tack than what you said. So our farm is uh, located in the uh, Lake Erie uh, uh, watershed. Uh, we're right at the edge of the watershed, but we, we definitely have water that runs north into Lake Erie. You know, I think if people have been pay, paying attention, they know that we've had a big environmental issue with that, with the basically with phosphorus levels in, in the rivers and tributaries going into Lake Erie and then the algae blooms and it's affecting uh, you know, people's water, I mean, their ability to enjoy Lake Erie and, and the water supply for cities like Toledo, Ohio. So anyway, it's a big deal. It's a big political deal. And so they are, there are lots of talk, you know, first of all, there's just, there's a movement, right, uh, about, about doing something about this that is political. But then, I mean, you know, it's, it's your neighbors, it's people that are, that are concerned about it. But second of all, th there are incentives that are coming along. And it's really interesting. I mean, for us, it's been, interesting and gratifying in the sense that so what are some of the main incentives one of them is cover crops well we've been emphasizing that anyway so uh, but i you know we are participating in programs that help incentivize us financially uh, with the cover crop another one is i mentioned strip till and and subsurface placement of you know uh, uh, of nutrients especially phosphorus so one of the big things is they want to get away from surface application of phosphorus you know i mentioned we have livestock so we have manure and we have 
Uh, and obviously uh, we don't put manure on all our acres, so we have the dry fertilizer. We had been moving towards uh, subsurface application anyway. We felt like we were getting uh, better distribution from an air system that, than we would from a spreader anyway, and we were controlling it ourselves, things like that. So, so it, it, the things that we kind of been doing anyway are very much being incentivized right now to be done. And so we're taking advantage of it. I mean, we're just, it just fits philosophically where we're at. So we're doing it. And, but it's, it's also real money and it, it drives, I, I mean, I can see it in other farms that it's driving some equipment sales, right? That these, these uh, fertilizer application rigs, you know, when, when there's a financial incentive to do it, people are trying to adopt it. Right. And there's also custom applicators who are really gearing up to do this kind of thing. So at least they are equipping themselves to do that. Right. And, um, and the cover crop thing also presents, you know, it's, it's, it's how you're going to get them seeded. And, you know, we take a multi approach. We, we broadcast some with an airplane. We, there's high clearance equipment. We don't, we haven't had as much luck with that, but we basically balance them between the airplane and then our own seeding, you know, so, I mean, an air seeder, uh, which probably five years ago wouldn't have been that big a deal on our farm at all, is now a, a major component for us, both from the standpoint of the wheat that I talked about, but also seeding these cover crops that do tend to come up in early fall. So anyway, you're, you're talking about timely things and trends and what we're responding to economically. You know, and I know that not everybody has this sort of Lake Erie set of incentives, but there are other watersheds we are obviously hearing a lot about in other states where this, where where similar things are going on, and and it is it is driving. I mean, for us, maybe confirming decisions, but definitely driving you know uh, further adoption and, and confirming what we're doing. You bring up a good point there with with certainly more emphasis in recent years being placed, you know, kind of in the in the public eye on on soil health, water quality, um, you know, conservation practices, uh, you know, hearing more about, you know, regenerative ag now, um, you know, with, with those, those trends and now those, those incentives that are becoming uh, more available, uh, how important do you think it's going to be, you know, from a, an agricultural standpoint, you know, and, and as a farmer to embrace those opportunities, you know, from not only, you know, a public perception, but also, you know, from just a, an efficiency standpoint and being able to, you know, improve some of those farm management practices, maybe in different ways that you think uh, of prior generations that, you know, they wouldn't have considered kind of going down that path because, you know, it was tradition, you know, what they'd done always worked and, and you know, why change things if, if there really wasn't any incentive to do so. You know, I mean, first of all, a lot of these regulatory and environmental uh, trends also do dovetail with what is economically sustainable, right? I mean, it, it's about getting as much as you can out of out of the out of the resources you're using, right? And if they're going off site uh, for whatever reason, then that's a problem, right? And so, uh, you know, being you know, keeping the fertilizer that you apply on your farm is 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 pretty basic, right? But beyond that, you know, there are people that, that there are non-farm people in this Lake Erie watershed who basically want to take about half of the acres out of production. I mean, they're dead serious. They, they, they make no connection to how that might affect food or if every watershed in the country did it, what that would mean. In their mind, the only answer is to take, you know, 10 million acres of cropland and plant it to grass and, and never touch it so that their water is clear. And I mean, it, <laughs> they're serious about that. So I think we have to we have to meet them somewhere and and explain to them how how we can try to make this work for everybody. 
so, so there's a lot of, it, but I do want to say, so, so it has to work economically in terms of profitability on the farm. Uh, but there are, you know, different ways to skin that cat. And uh, if, if it can work that way, you have to also be willing to meet the larger goals of, uh, of the society. So how important is it today? And then uh, again, now transitioning a little bit into to the more forward uh, looking uh, portion here for farmers to uh, really embrace that data piece of their operation, that agronomic uh, analysis as far as being able to, to drill down to that ROI piece uh, versus, you know, maybe being a little more casual with it or, or kind of having a sense of, you know, what their, you know, their, their cost per acre is. And um, I guess kind of the, the mentality I've heard, uh, you know, thrown around particularly with the next generation is having much more of a, a CFO mentality with their farm versus, uh, you know, kind of more of a, a traditional, you know, mindset, uh, perhaps that, you know, their fathers or grandfathers had, you know, when uh, operating that farm? I think that that's been, I mean, in my entire career, I mean, there has been a movement to more uh, business-oriented farms, right? And that's going to be a segment of the, of the production in that, um, you know, farms that are growing, farms that are using not just their own capital, but are, you know, borrowed money, whatever, that you, you just hold yourself to a higher standard, right? And you have to. I think, I don't know, I, having, you know, really worked a lot with other farms and maybe understood this, you, know, you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself on that. I think some countervailing trends to this idea of total managed by number financials are the fact, number one, that a lot of farms are pretty strong right now financially. I mean, they've got, if they have a land base of any size, they've got a big cushion or they feel that they have a cushion. And, uh, and so there's just, there's not this, I mean, there's not this overwhelming daily pressure to get their numbers better, right? They can continue to kind of go along, use their intuition and get by. And that's, that's reality, right? And so, and I think the second thing that I see is if I if I look at sort of the the millennial farmers, okay, which would be my children's generation. Uh, I mentioned I farm with my nephew, and I'm not speaking about him personally as I make these comments. I, I you know, he, everybody's unique. Every person is unique. But if I look at the many many of them that I have interacted with around. They're, they they did most of them did not start farming because of a strong sort of business orientation, right? They're farming because they have a connection to the land. They they have that farming. You know, it's about the agronomy. It's about the work. It's about it's about the independence. It's about raising a family, and uh, you know the tight tight business skills. Uh, it's not that they don't have them again. There's a, there's a broad breadth, but that's not their reason for being right. And so there's a, there's a small segment that have that, but most of them are not. And so, you know, you can't, if you're, you just can't assume that they're going to suddenly become these uh, MBA CFO type managers. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're probably going to be open to uh, outside help with that. 
and you know, and, and ever, from their suppliers. And I think there's an opportunity for equipment dealers around the equipment decision making and planning uh, to provide some help there and to help them optimize their fleet. Now, I have one other thing I want to say that uh, that, that kind of goes against that, and that and that's when you talked about data. Okay, so ultimately, data. People who use data are going to be the winners, okay? And if you don't want to control that for your farm, then somebody else is going to do it. Now, we think about agronomic data, precision ag data, and as much as there's been a ton of data there, there's also, it's been disappointing, right? I mean, I think we believed in the 90s when we first got yield monitors that by now, we would be fine-tuning in innumerable in things. We'd know, it, we'd know the top 10, 20, 30, 40 variables that affect yield, and we would just pinpoint them because we had all this measurement, right? And it didn't work out. Uh, because uh, Mother Nature uh, is a lot more complicated than we thought. One other thing, and this is in my own personal area, so I'm going to bring it up. I'm talking to equipment people. I think we're right on the edge of a much more data-oriented uh, equipment management uh, regime, okay, where we start uh, keeping data on our equipment in terms of exactly how we're using it, obviously some internal things about how it's performing, but, but the use of it so that at the end of the year, we will have, we'll be able to crunch numbers and get pretty precise in the terms of our asset utilization and, and our cost uh, to operate these things and, and, and then dial that into our capacity needs. If we need to plan everything in seven days, we're going to take this data from our operations and we're going to say what, what needs to change to get us. I, I do think that is coming. And those that are able to, to handle that and adapt that uh, are going to be ahead. And I, and I do believe, just again, given that environment that I talked about in terms of the farmers today, it's probably going to be somebody who brings that to the farm. I don't think the farmers themselves are just going to suddenly become hugely data-oriented on this stuff. But if you can bring this to them and show them, hey, here's an analysis of your operation. Here's how we can make you $30 an acre. I mean, because it, it's, there's a lot of money involved in, in your operational expenses. I think that kind of thing is going to, it is coming. Well, thank you, Brian, for sharing some of how you assess and achieve economic payback in your strip-till system, along with an outlook for maintaining a profitable operation. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program. So feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2020 podcast series. For Brian Watkins, AgriSolutions, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening.